This time last year, we were kicking off our first prayer week. And I was excited about all the promise of 2020, all that God was going to do. And every last one of my plans ended up in a little manila folder, the back of the drawer in my desk for a uh, more favorable time some, sometime in the future. But I did learn a lesson from that experience that just as our church was starting to talk about corporate prayer and we were getting back into the habit of praying together, the uh, coronavirus pandemic came and we were right where we were supposed to be, praying together, trusting in God, depending on Him, asking Him to, to be with us. And so uh, I'm convinced every year ought to start with a united season of prayer. So that's what we're doing this week. We're kicking off Prayer Week 2.0. And uh, the theme's a little different. Um, this theme this year is revival, and we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But, you know, it, it really dawned on me a few months ago that as the coronavirus, well, it's actually been longer than that, because I thought at first we'd just take a brief hiatus and then we'd get back to normal. But now it's like you're looking forward to the day when things reopen completely, and we don't have to wear masks and look at each other uh, wonder what our facial expressions are. Uh, you know, we start to imagine what things will be like when we're finally back together. You know, there is one way for us to just get back to the way things were, pick up where we left off. Uh, Y'all come into Sunday school class and, you know, we'll start passing the offering plate around and all those wonderful things that we used to do. Or we could maybe approach the re-entry to whatever that day looks like with a little more careful consideration, prayerful reflection, asking God what He really wants from us going forward. And so that's kind of what this prayer week is all about, this theme of revival. You know, I, I sense the need that we need to ask as a church, Central Baptist Church, and, and probably if y'all nominated me Southern Baptist Pope, I would make all the churches do it. But uh, we all ought to think real long and hard about what God wants from us going forward. Who do you want us to be, Lord? We, we've got a track record of being one way, but is this really what we're supposed to be? Is this what we're supposed to look like? And my suggestion to you as your pastor and not your pope is that we ought to do the second. We ought to say, Lord, here we are, humble before you, totally broken, totally aware that everything we've got is a gift from you that we can't count on tomorrow. And so if life is short... And our time at this place is limited. What do you want from us while we're here? And so that is what this prayer week is all about. And, and I believe that this passage this morning is the goal. It is, it is a picture of a church alive. And there are some vital signs of life present in this early church that I'm convinced have to be present in our church. And so this week we need to ask God to convince us that these things are needed and then produce them in us so we can be the church He wants us to be. So if you've got your Bible, let's look together at the vital signs of a church alive right here in Acts 2.42. Are you there? Yeah. Amen. All right, well, here we go. Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, 
as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Hey, y'all pray with me real quick before we dive into this. Father in heaven, we uh, come before you this morning, Lord, thanking you for your, uh, your presence with us. God, it's obvious that you are here in the way that you have caused our hearts to be filled with joy as we've sung worship to you. Now as we look at this passage, God, we pray that you would make it clear to us and that we'd see exactly what you want us to see from this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now you're probably familiar with this passage, aren't you? I mean, this is a good one. We all want to be a New Testament church. And here it is, the New Testament church. I mean, it describes the earliest days of the Jerusalem church. I mean, just uh, 10 days before, uh, Jesus had ascended into heaven and he left his disciples there in Jerusalem praying for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they were gathered in the upper room, we read at the beginning of Acts 2. And they were united in their hearts and minds, crying out to God for the Spirit. And he answered them. And he poured out his Spirit from heaven and he filled them up and they spilled out into the streets, speaking in all kinds of languages. Uh, the people of Jerusalem were convinced they were out of their mind, drunk, and uh, blabbering on, nothing. Until finally somebody said, no, wait, I hear them speak in my language. And somebody said, yeah, me too. And they realized that what was happening was these uneducated Jewish men were speaking in languages of the ancient world, proclaiming the wonderful works of God. And Peter, Jesus' disciple, stood up and seized the captive audience and preached this really clear and compelling sermon identifying Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament, come to save His people and usher in the New Covenant. In Acts 2.41, we read that on that day, at that sermon's conclusion, uh, 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus and committed themselves to following Him. That is a harvest, if there ever has been a harvest. 3,000 people, one sermon. And so Luke describes for us then, verse 42 to 47, what those 3,000 people got integrated into. What did it look like to be a new believer and get assimilated into the church life in the first century? He shows us. He, he gives us this summary passage. It's actually one of three summary passages in the first five chapters of Acts. And in each one, Luke is drawing our attention to the common life of the people. And he's showing us that everything that happened in the early church was a product of the gospel being preached and the Spirit being poured out. Everywhere they went, everything they did was a product of the Spirit's work among them, bringing growth and development to the church. Of course, the, the particular practices and rituals of that day were unique to them. And I've told you that I think this presents to us a picture, the goal of what our church should look like. And you know, we'll get to the redistribution of wealth and what that's supposed to look like in the 21st century. Hopefully you've got the answer for that. But, uh, <laughs> but it, was, it was. It was rooted in their day. But he's holding this up as an ideal for every church that followed, not just in Jerusalem, but in all the ancient world and even down to today, something that we can strive for. And so as we work through this, I want you to kind of keep an open mind because I think if we want to see the kind of thing that God did in Jerusalem happen in Luling, Texas, and I don't know about you, 
I'd love to see 3,000 people in Luling, Texas get saved. There are 3,000 lost people in this town, at least, all right? Y'all know some of them, and they need to get saved. So I'd love to see it, and if we're going to see it, it's going to be because we become a church alive like this church was alive. They were hungry for the Word of God. They loved each other in an obvious way, and they were dependent on God in prayer. And so the first thing about it, the first vital sign of a church alive is it hungers for the Word of God. Hungers for the Word of God. Luke says in verse 42 that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, this teaching is not a mystery to us. We're not talking about some oral tradition passed down from person to person, not contained in the Scripture somewhere. Now, Luke shows us uh, throughout the book of Acts what this apostolic teaching was all about. Uh, he shows us the sermons of Peter and John and of Paul. And the major themes of those sermons were, were pretty clear, and they should be familiar to you if you've been in a church at all. They all revolved around Jesus. In almost every case, they're holding Jesus up as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior who came to save His people from their sins, and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament's promises. And so you can imagine those 3,000 people hear that first sermon on Pentecost and devote themselves to trying to understand all the ins and outs of who Jesus really was. They went to the temple day by day looking for some answers. Peter, John, you're going to happen to open this thing up for me and help me to understand who Jesus really is. But then it goes beyond just the identity of Jesus, who He is and what He did. It's also His teaching. Jesus told the disciples that they were supposed to uh, teach the new disciples, the second generation of disciples, to observe everything He commanded. And so as the apostles taught these new Christians what it meant to be a believer in Jesus, they were handing down to them all that Jesus had taught them as they traveled with Him for three and a half years. So the apostolic teaching has two parts. It explains the identity of Jesus, and often it did so through the Old Testament, showing how Jesus fulfilled prophecies and promises. And it contained the actual teaching that Jesus gave to His disciples themselves. Everywhere they went, the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching because they were the authoritative eyewitnesses of who Jesus was and what Jesus taught. And as they did this, incredible things happened. Luke tells us that they spoke the word with boldness, unafraid of the consequences. And that though often it was rejected and people you know, sent them out of town in a hurry, sometimes people received it with gladness. In fact, uh, he says that the word of the Lord spread... And some people received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the message about Jesus was so. Everywhere the apostles went, they spread the word of the Lord. Right? And over time, as the church grew and got bigger and it got in far-flung places, they couldn't always rely on face-to-face -face instruction like you and I get. You know, they didn't have live streams, so you could blast it out to people who were at home. Instead, they wrote letters, right? And they sent this apostolic teaching to churches in far-off places by way of messengers. And over time, these letters that bore their name, like 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, 1 and 2 Peter, or the, the locations to which they were written, Corinth, Ephesus, Rome, come to hold a special place in the church's mind. And alongside the Old Testament, there's this increasingly thick, stack of letters and scrolls and books of apostolic teaching. 
And it became to have the same sort of influence as their teaching did. I mean, Peter could say of Paul's letters in 2 Peter, Count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And I like this part. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist of their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Lots to unpack there, and you can do that on your own. It's 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. But Peter speaks of Paul's letters and holds them up alongside the other scriptures, which are twisted to suit the needs and interests of false teachers. Right? This apostolic teaching that those early believers gathered around to hear was put into letter form. And now today, it sits right here in your Bible. And so as a result, you don't have to look for some 21st century apostle or think that maybe they had it better back in the first century. No, the same Word of God that they were hungry for in Jerusalem is available to you today, right here. The Word of God, living, active, breathing, ready to divide you and cut you up, revealing to you the sin that's in your heart, right? That is the facts. So the early church benefited from these eyewitnesses, and we have it today. So what? I mean, how many, my kids got new Bibles for Christmas. Did y'all get any, anybody else get a new Bible for Christmas? Well, they're preacher's kids, I guess. But, <laughs> but we got a lot of Bibles, don't we? Y'all got a lot of Bibles? I mean, here in the 21st century, you got Bibles wrapped in leather, Bibles printed on paper and book form and comic book form. You got them on your tablets and your iPhones. But I got to know, are you hungry for it? It's all around you. Are you hungry for it? You see, from the beginning, God's people have been a people of the book. Right? God comes to His people, Israel, and speaks to them through Moses. And what happens? I mean, it's amazing. First thing God does once He gets His people out of Egypt is He gives them a couple of stone tablets with words scrawled on it. They're people of the book. Black and white. It's crystal clear what God wants from you. What are you going to do about it? People said, hey, we'll do everything that's written in this book. After Moses dies, leadership's passed on to Joshua, who's supposed to lead these crazy bunch of people into the promised land. And Joshua gets the instruction in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, that you'll be careful to do everything that's written in it. Then your way will be prosperous, and you will have great success. This book of the law, in your mouth, thinking about it, day and night. Man of Psalm 1, Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffer. But his delight's in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of water which bear fruits in its season. All that he does will prosper. Like the man of Psalm 119, who says, In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. You know, we can, of course... Hear these verses, I memorize them because they mean so much to me. And we can find application to our lives in them. But they most clearly are fulfilled in Jesus, who when he was tempted by Satan, you know, didn't come up with some witty comeback. Instead said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of God is essential in our lives. It's a vital sign of a church alive. Where there is no hunger for the Word of God, listen to this, there's no life. 
No life. You can have all the Bibles you want, but the actual attitude of the person who says, this is my food, this is my drink, I hunger for it like a baby longs for its mother's milk. This is what I got to have. There's no life. Well, there's no hunger for the Word of God. It happened, though. You know, we know churches. Word of God has no place in that church. It happened for the ancient people of Israel. God spoke through Isaiah. He said, They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Scholar D.A. Carson says, Where there's no passion for the word, other passions take over. That's the danger. You see, Christians and churches, they, we, let's not say they, we are quick to try on these, it's the beginning of the year and maybe you got some resolutions. We're quick to try on these spiritual get-fit-quick schemes. Like there's some kind of mantra we can learn. It's going to help us get right with God or something. Churches do it too. They are, they, I get magazines and email blasts all week long from ministry professionals and experts who've got the freshest ministry strategy that's going to help you reach the lost in your town. And the crazy thing is, a lot of time it, it'll work. You know, there are lots of things and tricks and techniques you can use to make things appear alive. But over time, it proves to be no more alive than the berries are on the garland on this stage. It looks good, but it's not a real berry. No, the church must hunger for the Word of God, or else there will be no life. And so you could take a look at your life, you could take a look at our church, you could take a look at denominations and all kind of things, and, and just ask the simple question, what is their attitude towards the Word of God? What place does the Bible hold? What practical place does the Bible hold in their life? They may read it, they may talk about it, but do they hunger for it? Does it have priority in what they do and how they live? You show me the attitude of a person towards the Word of God, and I can tell you where their life will end up. And so today, as we enter into this prayer week, I encourage you to think about this. Does our church hunger for the Word of God? Do you hunger for the Word of God? The second vital sign of a church alive, though, is their love for each other. Luke tells us they were continually devoted to fellowship. To the fellowship. Now, fellowship is one of those church words that we throw around a lot. We've got a fellowship hall. We have fellowship meals. But what really is fellowship? And it comes from this Greek word that means to share in something or to have a common participation in a thing. Uh, we usually mean we're going to spend some time together. That means you're going to fellowship. But it's obvious from Luke's description of this church that their fellowship took on a little bit more concrete form. Uh, in verses 44, he says, All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. The same root word that we get the word common from is found in the Greek word for fellowship. And so the kind of fellowship he's talking about is the fellowship that led them to sell their possessions to meet the needs of the brothers and sisters around them. And, you know, I, I remember being in college, and in college you, you believe and do strange things. 
And I remember believing and doing strange things with this passage. And thankfully, um, I think most of the sermons from when I was in college have disappeared into the ether. But these verses sound strange to, to 21st century ears. You know, we, we quickly remind ourselves, hey, this was a different time and place. This was a descriptive passage, not prescriptive. It's not telling us what to do. It's just telling us what they did. But you have to stop and wonder, where did they get the idea that they should sell their stuff and make sure other people's needs were met? And when you ask that question, the deeper truth and principle that led to that particular application become clear. I mean, Jesus had taught his disciples to give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, sell all your things and give it to the poor. Right, so a lot of this, I mean, we even get to the passage that Mike read earlier for us from 1 John 3. And the really gut-wrenching one is, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, but then closes his heart against him, how does, the, how does God's love abide in him? How is it possible, John says, for God's love to be present in a person when they're not even willing to meet the physical need of somebody they say they love. And so he says, it's not enough to say you love somebody. You actually have to show you love somebody. Like Jesus, who showed his love for us by dying on a cross. You know, and so those early Christians, they had that in their head, that the way of Christ involves personal sacrifice for the good of others. And so when they saw a brother suffering... They did what they needed to do to meet their need. And you think about the needs they were facing. I mean, I, I read this 3,000 number, and that is a megachurch. I have no desire to be a megachurch pastor, okay? Send them somewhere else, Lord. Save them, but send them over there, <laughs> right? 3,000 people, though, is a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And, uh, you know, you, you think about that. Wow, that's a big church. But then you realize that Jerusalem in the first century had a population of somewhere between 180 and 200,000 people. That's the size, I looked it up, of Amarillo, Texas. So 3,000 people, it seems a lot to us, we live in a 5,400-person town, but it's a, drop, a teensy tiny drop in the bucket in a town like that. And then you got to remember that these people are not just you know, a numerical minority. They are a religious minority, totally different than the people they live around. Now, those 180,000 people aren't all good Christian people. They're Jews who had just recently crucified the leader of that little group of 3,000 people. And they weren't just different from them. They were despised by them, hated, tracked down, thrown in prison, persecuted and killed. They were a persecuted religious minority in a majority Jewish culture. So when they got together at church, they weren't just around some of the folks from around town. They were literally, get this, with the only people in the entire world who believed the things they believed. They were among their people. All week long, they're out in the world getting sneered at and spit at. Maybe they're losing their businesses because, hey, that's one of those Christians. You don't want to shop over there. 
And so when they came to church, they were with their people. They were with their family. They loved each other. They had this common identity that was rooted in their common faith in Jesus. And it meant something. That tie was deep. And so when, you know, Jonah's shops at risk of going under, doesn't cost me anything to sell what I've got and make sure he can keep his business afloat. When they're worried about making their rent and getting evicted, hey, it's nothing for me to chip in a little bit to make sure they've got a warm place to stay. I love these people. These are my family. Jesus died for them. That's the love that we're talking about when we say the vital sign of a church alive is that they love each other. They really did love each other. It wasn't just sharing in their financial resources. Luke tells us they were also devoting themselves continually to the breaking of bread. And some people believe this is the Lord's Supper and communion. And I want to believe that. I do, because it would have been really convenient because we are celebrating the Lord's Supper today. But in the ancient world, breaking bread means what it does today. It just means to eat together. And Luke says in verse 46 that from house to house they were breaking bread, taking their meals together, praising God and receiving favor from all the people. So I think they just loved each other so much that they didn't just spend time together when they were at the temple, when they were at church on Sunday. Their lives somehow overlapped. So they were together all the time, doing big things like selling stuff to make sure that they had what they needed and just being in each other's homes because they loved each other that much. You know, I think this is, to me, the most compelling part of the story because that is so foreign and alien today. You know, we used to talk about when we lived in Houston how it was so difficult to make progress as a church because we lived in the suburbs. So mom and dad drop their kids off at school in the morning, commute 30, 45 minutes to work, park in the parking garage, go up the elevator, go in their cubicle, stay eight hours, leave their cubicle, get in the elevator, go down, get in their car, drive home 30, 45 minutes, pull into their garage, close the door behind them, and disappear into their house for the rest of the day. And so you're like, hey, invite your friends to church. And nobody's got any friends. They have co-workers and acquaintances, but people don't spend time together. I've only been here 18 months, and I imagine it's better than that here. But maybe not. I don't know. And when I start to look in the Bible and see the kind of relationships the early Christians had with each other, I think to myself, man, wouldn't it be cool if that happened again today? I mean, nowhere in the world can a person find the kind of community the kind of love that we read in Acts 2. I mean, you think about it. Y'all are awfully quiet, but you think about it. And it seems like the pervasive attitude of our culture is either, on the one hand, radical individualism. I'm going to do what's best for me. Or, on the other hand, a tribalistic group identity. This is us, and you are you. And we want nothing to do with you. The media divides us up that way. Tech companies divide us up that way. Politicians divide us up that way. Everywhere you look, that's the way it do it. We're easier to control and market to when we're divided up into nice little groups. But then the gospel comes in. And it breaks through all those neat little barriers we put up. And it says, no, there's neither, neither, 
Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And all of a sudden you realize that maybe the way we live, either in our little bubble as individuals or in our tribes as groups, is not the way it's supposed to be. That maybe God has from the beginning been creating for himself a people from every nation, tribe, and language. And already, even now, in a broken world, he's doing that in the church. Uniting people of different political, ethnic, socioeconomic backgrounds under one banner. What is it? Jesus. Jesus. That's what God wants to do in us. Where else can you find something like that? Of course, you probably know how challenging that is. You've probably been a part of a church where people show up at Sunday and smile at each other. They don't love each other. They hardly even like each other. They want nothing to do with them. But how is that possible, Mike? They'll know we're Christians by our love. And then a newcomer steps foot on a place and it's obvious to everybody Man, there's some division here. But when an outsider stepped into the room in Acts 2, it was obvious. These people love each other. So if we want to be a church alive, we've got to get there somehow. I think we're getting, I think we are there. I'm not here to cast stones or anything. But I'm just saying, as a rule, a church alive loves each other. But three... Depending on God in prayer. The third vital sign, they're depending on God in prayer. And that's what Luke says. He says that they were continually devoting themselves to the prayers. Now, when you put it like that, the prayers, it's obvious that what he means is those early Christians were continuing in the practice of the fixed hour Jewish prayer. That there were times throughout the day that were designated times for people to assemble and pray. We saw that when Zacharias in the temple offering incense at the appointed time after the morning offering, the people were outside praying. So they continued doing that. They were, they were still Jews who had recognized Jesus as the Messiah, and they were going through the prayers. But it's obvious that the prayer life the church had didn't end there. It wasn't just the institutional fixed hour prayer. But they were continually praying. And you just think about what we talked about already in Acts 2. They're gathered together in the upper room praying. And in response to that prayer, God pours out His Spirit and sends them out into the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And those new Christians who are added, the 3,000, jump right in with them and start praying together. And you just keep reading through the book of Acts, and prayer shows up again and again and again. One of my favorite is in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John are, are detained and brought before the Sanhedrin and told not to preach in the name of Jesus again. They say, hey, whether it's right for us to do that or not, it's between... You and God, we're going to do what God said. And so they go back to the church and they pray this prayer. This is Acts 4.29. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Prayer. Peter later, Acts 10, is praying on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner in Joppa when he gets this vision of animals descending from heaven. Lord, I've never eaten an unclean thing in my life. What I call clean, you don't call unclean. 
And the next day he finds out that God's not talking about animals. He's talking about the Gentiles and the gospel spreading to them. Later, Acts 13, the church in Antioch fasts and prays before they lay their hands on Saul, on Paul and Barnabas and send them out as missionaries to the world. Everywhere you go, this church was depending on God in prayer. And for good reason. Now, the disciples had been with Jesus for three and a half years. And so they had observed His example of prayer. Now, I've quoted all the time, but R.A. Torrey makes the great point that Jesus prayed before every major turning point in His life. He prayed before He was anointed by the Spirit and sent into the wilderness. He prayed before He called His disciples. He prayed before He went on preaching tours. He prayed in Gethsemane the night He was crucified. Jesus was a man of prayer, spending time with the Father, asking for His direction. But they also heard Jesus' teaching. They absorbed it. They knew that He had told them to ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. Jesus told His disciples to pray for their daily bread, to pray for laborers to be sent out into the harvest, told them to pray for the Holy Spirit. And they took Him up on His Word. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. They depended on Him in prayer. Because prayer isn't just one of those spiritual practices that we all ought to do more of in the new year. Prayer is the essence of a relationship with God. If you truly understand who God is and who you are, you will be dependent on Him in prayer. See, their prayer and the prayers we have to learn to pray are, like at their root, a variation on the theme of this. I'm nothing without you, God. I'm nothing without you. I'm not the dad I'm supposed to be without you, God. I'm not the husband I'm supposed to be. I'm not the pastor. I'm not the friend. I'm not the man I'm supposed to be unless you help me, God, so help me. That's the variation that every prayer ought to be made on. It's a prayer that shows up in a church like this. Okay, Lord, if that's what you want, we'll do it. But you're going to have to provide. <laughs> right? Most of the time, church's prayers are like this. Well, we've never done it that way before, Lord. <laughs> we don't have the resources to do that, Lord. We don't have the people to make that happen, Lord. Are you sure this is what you want? But the prayer, the early church prayed, the prayer we got to pray is, Okay, Lord. If that's what you want, we'll do it, but you're going to have to provide. The prayer that says, all right, Lord, you want us to train up kids? You're going to have to send some people who have a passion and a burning desire to train up kids because we don't got them right now. Lord, if you want somebody to disciple teenagers, you're going to have to send them here. We want that, but we don't got them. So if that's really what you're calling us to, Lord, you're going to have to send us the people. Says, Lord, you want us to fix our leaky roof, renovate our stage, replace our windows? How are we going to do that, God? But you want us to, so we'll do it, but you've got to provide the resources. Those are the prayers that express dependence on God. And, and I do believe that CBC is becoming this kind of place. I mean, you think about where we've been this year and what we've done. I mean, God did, through your generosity, release the funds to replace a roof, to renovate a stage. We're going to be able to replace our windows without, I, well, I'm speaking in faith, without borrowing a dime. 
not having a loan payment that we can't afford to cover with cash. That's God doing that. Last week, Saturday night, 6 o'clock, set your alarms. We're going to pray for Chris. Chris in the ICU on life support, meningitis, COVID-19. Then Julene and Dennis pick him up on Thursday and bring him home for Christmas. That is a prayer of dependence on God. Amen. Yes. And so the question is, are we going to grow into that? Are these the first signs of what's to come? Are we going to be a church that depends on God in prayer? You know, the deal is this. I mean, it's nice to celebrate, and we have to celebrate. But we can't let our foot off the gas. If we want to see God transform this town, we have to be a church alive, one that hungers for the Word, that loves each other, and that depends on God in prayer, not just for a few days or a few months or for a year, but on and on and on. Because those signs are, are like an engine. And they are constantly turning over and fueling and igniting and empowering movement and progress. But the destination is important. I mean, Luke tells us in verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Right? The church alive is great, but the church alive and on mission is better. And that's what we want. In 2021, we want the Lord to add to our number day by day those who are being saved. And I believe He will. When we hunger for the Word, when we love each other, when we depend on God in prayer, we are like a magnet drawing people in. People want truth. You believe that? People want truth. Jesus says, your Word is truth. When people hear truth and see things from God's perspective, a light bulb goes off when the Spirit comes into their heart, and they cling to it. They hunger for it. It changes everything about them. When they see a community of people who love each other despite the cost, they want to be a part of that. When they find a group of people who are unashamed to admit their weakness and point to one who is strong, say, we don't trust in chariots. We don't trust in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. People love that. People want that. People need that. And so this week, as we enter into prayer week, I, I want to challenge you to get this picture clear in your mind of what a church at Live looks like and determine in your heart to be a part of it. You know, uh, a church is great, but a church is made up of individuals. And what a church alive is made up of are individuals who are alive. And so I've got a few questions for you. Do you hunger for the Word? You individually. What place does the Bible have in your life? Does it sit on the shelf, gain in dust, or do you hunger for it, like the baby who hungers for its mother's milk? Maybe as you begin a new year, you need to commit to daily Bible reading. I'm going to give you a Bible reading plan next week. It starts on January 4th, and if you'll follow it, you can read through the New Testament five days a week between now and the end of December, or you can read through the whole Bible in five days a week, between January 4th and the end of December, and at your own pace, whichever makes sense for your walk with God. But one way or the other, put your hunger for the Word into action. Make it a priority. Do you love the people around you at this church? 
not just in word, but in action. You know, maybe now is a perfect time to get back involved in a Sunday school class or try to find another way to develop meaningful relationships with other Christians. You know, maybe you want to be discipled, somebody to take you by the hand and help you grow in your faith with Jesus. I'd love to do that. So if you want to be a part of my discipleship group, let me know. But are you loving the people around you in concrete ways? And lastly, are you depending on God in prayer? Are you praying each day, not just the sort of typical prayers, but are you really crying out to the Lord and depending on Him in prayer? I think if you grow in those things, if you pursue those things, you will be alive, and our church will be alive. Can you pray with me?